I don't like the word coping with emotions, right? Because to me, that says we're still trying to control things. But I think a huge part of emotional intelligence is that ability to surrender to the process and go with the flow and not be so fixated on the outcome. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress all over the world happening right now that almost no one knows about yet. But we're working on changing that at the Goodness Exchange. Here we'll shine a light on people with solutions, people who are challenging some of the biggest problems in our world, and they're winning. And they think the future is still bright. And that's what's important to us. We need to know what they know. We need to know what they think about getting around obstacles. And we need to share that same positive worldview that's out there just waiting for us when we know more. So today we're talking to a wonderful thought leader who I'm not quite sure how I discovered Brittany Nicole, but she has an expertise, Brittany Nicole Connor Savarda. She has an expertise in something that I'm very interested in these days that I know can open a new era for us all. It is called emotional intelligence. Now, it may be a word that's that's familiar to you, but it's not familiar to a lot of people. And yet I'm beginning to feel like it's fundamental to us recovering from this era of darkness and doom and gloom um, in our news and online lives. So welcome, Brittany Nicole Connor Savarda. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Linda. And it was actually shout out to Cole Baker Bagwell. She's the one who recommended that you and I connect. That's it. That's it. Oh, there's another great thought leader. I'm going to be interviewing her tomorrow. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me of that. Well, I have to tell people a little bit more about this emotional intelligence concept and your connection to it. You actually had the whatever it takes to start a magazine, an online magazine. And is it in published print too? It is not. No, it's just an online digital magazine called the Emotional Intelligence Magazine. You know, I'm going to have you tell more about your story because you describe yourself using the words, you were living an utterly miserable life. (laughs) And you found your way out of that darkness through really focusing on, I would say, what I would consider our better impulses. You know, one of the things that we see all over the news and social media these days is that that whole system is built to trigger our worst emotions, fear and anger and scarcity and all that. But what I love about your work and, and all that you're publishing there at the uh, Emotional Intelligence Magazine is that you're reminding us of who, of who we are, who we can be, what we can shoot for. And your life story certainly points to all that too. So I want to also tell people that you've written a book called The EQ Deficiency. And so I'm hoping you can help us tap into all that so that we can live better lives. And and maybe we're just going to like fire off a whole bunch of insights here in the next 40 minutes so that people can, you know, say, oh, that's one of my soft spots or, oh, that's one of my strengths and lean into where they can be more emotionally intelligent in a world that is so darn complex. Yeah. Utter misery that that describes who I used to be or how I used to feel at least. And I think so many people are living in that state these days. Like you said, we have so many triggers in our society and that's also embedded in our relationships as well. 
And that was kind of what led to that misery, I would say, or at least fostered the misery. My family, I love them. We have a great relationship. We really do. And I think a lot of that comes from having that compassion for myself and now having that for them, because for the longest time, I blamed my family for all of my misery. I blamed them for my anxiety, whether it be genetic blame, you know, you you caused me to have this because our entire family is diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder or the way that you treated me led to the way that I feel. And once I took that responsibility that I'm the one who dictates how I feel and how I approach life and perceive life, everything changed for me, but that took self-awareness which is the foundational element of emotional intelligence, right? And when I decided to write the book and write the magazine, I've heard other authors say this as well. When they write books, you're kind of writing for yourself. You're writing the material, the content, you're creating things that you wish you would have had whenever you were discovering yourself and figuring yourself out. And I think so many people are living in that We talked about it before, that victim mentality, which I was in for the longest time, because they don't know what else is out there, because they are so bombarded with all of this toxic social norms and news and labels that tell us that we are what we are and we we find a way out of that. Yeah, this is... This is seems to be uh, okay. We could look at it as the burden or the opportunity. Mm-hmm. What you're talking to us about today, you know, we can live with that burden of carrying around, you know, what cards we were dealt with our families and their their excellent parenting skills and their or their lack thereof. And then we've got all the way the world can seem against us if we're not the kind that just fit in is the prettiest or the most talented or the fastest runner and all those. But what I like about your work and and why I thought it was important to talk about this is is that we we are definitely going to have the opportunity to redefine the future, all of us as individuals and then what we work towards. That's that's the end of this pandemic and the great resignation, all the other big social movements that are seem to be feeling like a lot of turmoil right now. You know, this is all an opportunity to really re- reprioritize and rethink how much control or lack of we have in certain aspects of our lives. So I want, I, we, we had a chance, uh, Brittany Nicole and I to sort of plan this conversation a little bit and not a very structured way at all, but I wanted to figure out what she thinks are the most important parts of this emotional intelligence equation that she can speak to, that she can just keep giving us practical ways to think about one, one part of the equation after another. Does that sound good, uh, Brittany, if we just kind of throw out the concepts you and I talked about? Yeah, please. And you may have to throw them back at me because my memory, okay, <laughs> I have no. so many things out there. So I may yeah. need some refreshers. But yeah, yeah, I, I totally to. have, have a really, really nice list that I was delighted to come up with after I did my own deep dive. Okay. So I think one of the very most important things in self-awareness is to be aware of our intention or lack of it. This is at the heart of mindfulness and meditation and and um, self-care and all that, really. It's it's all about the intention or being on autopilot that we bring to every moment, right? 
Yeah, 100%. It's a game changer. You can go through the motions all day long, but until you are aware of why you're doing it and how you are going through that process, be it mentally or physically, spiritually connecting with other people, it doesn't matter. That intention plays a huge, huge role in that for sure. So talk to us about intention. What does intention mean? I think it's one of those buzzwords that's bubbling up to the top, but when people say, you know, you have to act with intention, what does that mean to you? I think honesty. I think honesty is a huge component of intention because we like to throw out what our intention is without necessarily thinking about the origin of that intent. Uh, This morning, I was actually on a panel discussion for my collegiate university and somebody had mentioned networking, the, the importance of networking. I said, well, it's all about your intention in networking. And I said, if you go into it with what can they do for me versus what can I do for them, then you're going about networking all wrong. It's it's not going to be fulfilling for either of you. And yeah, so we just kind of expanded on that a little bit. Every morning I do journaling and I do an intentions journal. So what is my intent for the day? And my intent could simply be focus and clarity. My intent could be to connect. And what that does is put that intention at the forefront of my mind. So when I start my day, I go out into the world more aware. And like you said, mindful of what I'm doing. Okay. So since speaking to you, we talked about intention a little bit. And if I'll give people an example, because I think if we go through this conversation, giving, you know, pure, like real examples, it may help people to activate this stuff in their own lives. I I really wasn't as tuned as, as I liked yesterday. So at some point I went, that's it. I'm going to spend the rest of the day looking for opportunities to be kind. And I'm driving home 60 miles an hour. And I passed this old farmer who was trying to load a bunch of wood on the side of the road into a wheelbarrow that kept turning over at him. I could see him off in the distance and he kept dumping the wheelbarrow. And so I thought, okay, I'm not in that big a hurry. I pulled over and I helped this old guy load his, his wheelbarrow so it wouldn't fall over and get it across the road and to his front door. And then I drove on and I thought, well, gosh, you know, when I'm, he had to have been over 85, approaching 90, I, you know, it made me feel good. I'm telling you the story a day later. So it, it was meaningful to me and it was, I'm sure it was a kindness for him and probably was warmer last night. I live in Vermont because of it. And so this was an intention. I was not just doing that drive for the fourth time in one day on autopilot. I was looking for a way to be kind. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Oh my gosh, that triggers a story for me now that you mention it. And I saw this in my book. It was good vibes at the DMV was kind of the section that I talked about in my book. And because, you know, the DMV, like they get a bad rap, right? Everybody talks about how miserable the people working at the DMV are, but nobody stops to think, how are you engaging with those people who work at the DMV? Because if you go into it thinking that they're miserable people, you're going to treat them as such, right? So I go into the DMV and it's a really long line. It's right around lunchtime. And so my intent was to really observe and it became an intention. It wasn't originally an intention, but I guess my intent going in was to be kind to this person at the front desk. But before I got to the front of, I started to observe the interactions between the people coming up to them. And what would happen was, you know, there was that transactional, hello, how are you? But it wasn't heartfelt. It wasn't genuine. It was very transactional. Hey, how are you? Fine. Maybe they would get a grunt. There wasn't any communication at all. And then people would 
complain about having to pay a bill or yelling at the person on the other side. And I'm like, man, if I was that person, I would probably be pretty grumpy too. If I'm constantly bombarded with other people's negative energy. So when I got to the front, my intention was to have everything that I needed prepared for them, greet them with a smile, to thank them for what they were doing. And it made a world of difference. The person, you know, again, that, hey, how are you? And I was like, I'm great. How are you doing today? I said, I see you're really busy today, but it is absolutely amazing how quick you are getting people in and out of the door. I said, this line was super long. And I'm really shocked that I'm able to get to the front of the line as quickly as I did. I said, that is amazing. And you know, that smile lit up on her face. I said, look, I don't know if I have everything for you. I hope I'm well prepared. So let me know if I don't have everything, I'll come back. And the fact that I appreciated her time, I mean, we built that connection. And when I walked away, I was also very careful to listen and observe for how the next interaction went with her. And it changed her tone when greeting the next person. It's creating that ripple effect. So I'm so glad that you brought up that story about the man with the wood and the wheelbarrow because that simple intent put into action changes everything. And it does create this ripple effect. That's amazing. Oh, this! thank you so much. This is exactly how um, I'd hope we'd start off this conversation and then just see how it rolls. You and I tell a few stories, people get the, an idea in their mind about what is possible for them in the next hour, in the next day. And that's exactly the ripple effect that you're talking about. Yeah, it's this amazing. It. And and it lasts for so long, right? Like it may have just been that one moment, that one minute, but that person at the DMV, that man may be talking about it for days, weeks, months, years to come. I mean, how many people have influential stories of their teachers or people that hired them when they were a little child that changed the whole trajectory of their life? It's powerful stuff. Absolutely. Okay. So if we're on intention, the next logical thing to talk about, because it fits so well, is this concept of reciprocity that you talked to me about. This is a concept, this is, this is at the heart of self-awareness, is realizing when we're acting in a way that involves reciprocity. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so kind of like the flip side of that is, again, that intention behind reciprocity, right? I think if you're doing things for people to get something back in return, your intention isn't genuine and you're not going to, re- well, actually you are going to reap what you sow because what you're sowing is not genuine. Therefore, you can't get something genuine back that. And I can't tell you how many years I went into business and relationships and interactions, always expecting other people to do things for me. And guess what? Now that I'm a business owner, now that I need help with stuff, it can be very difficult and challenging to have people help me because I never put that out there. I was never really helping other people. And help, I mean, developing my emotional intelligence helped a little bit with that. But if I have to be honest, I still struggle with being mindful with that whole concept of reciprocity because I just, I don't know. I don't know why I struggle with that so much. I think that becomes dangerous, right? Keeping score because it takes the whole like genuine kindness and intention out of it. 
even if it's simple stuff, like I unloaded the dishwasher last time, you need to do it this time. Like it can be little things. And then that snowballs into a potential argument. And I think also why we do the things we do. We were talking about the situation with my mom and and her renter, right? And how they started to have issues with their renter. And my mom kept saying, I can't believe she's acting this way when I've done blah, 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 blah for her. You know, I went and gave gift baskets to her kids when it was Halloween and I brought them this. And I said, well, did she ask you to do any of that? No, but if somebody did that for me, I would be grateful. I said, but why are you doing it? And sometimes we just want to thank you, that appreciation, that validation. But we have to ask ourselves if we validation, are we really coming from a genuine place when we do that for someone? Yes, it feels good for someone to appreciate something. But if we're expecting something in return, then to me, that says it wasn't fully 100% from the bottom of your heart, kind of like opening a door, right? How many times have you opened a door for someone? At least I know I have, right, in the past. And somebody just right through. And then as soon as they walk through and they don't thank me, I'm like, "Mm," you know, like, can't believe that. So I think that kind of ties into it, right? With the whole keeping score, there's subtleties as well. Yeah. So I'm assuming having some emotional intelligence about recognizing when you're keeping score on someone else and when you're truly doing something from your heart is a great place for all of us to sort of double down. I'll I'll offer one more um, uh, example of this that I think is at the heart of maybe the great resignation in some ways. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um, I'm a boss. I have this, aside from the goodness exchange, I have this giant dental practice with 12 employees and my husband. And there's, there's, it's almost like a tennis game. Sometimes there's the moments when I know I'm saying, Oh, don't they know how hard my husband and I worked all weekend to do this, that, or not the other for, for everyone. So they'd have a great place to work. And I know that goes on on the other side too, where they say, oh, don't Dr. Linda and Dr. Chuck know how hard we worked last week and blah, blah, blah. Isn't, isn't that the same kind of low level of consciousness? Yeah, I I think so. And with, you know, you brought up the great resignation and I hear so much about what are leaders doing for their employees, right? It's all about the focus or what are organizations, what are leaders doing for their employees? And I agree. I agree that that is super important. I think that there may potentially be a little bit of entitlement that is built when you're an employee sometimes, because how many employees, and I saw this when I was an employee at a large bank, it's we complain, and this isn't everyone, so I don't want to put everyone in a basket, but we can easily get into the the space where we're complaining about what other people aren't doing for us, but then we don't stop to ask ourselves, well, what are we doing for them? Did I spend three hours of my eight-hour day that I'm getting paid on their watch shopping on Amazon? Did I spend another hour maybe taking an extended lunch break? But we dismiss all of that stuff. And then we say, but they're not doing enough for us. So I think we have to be very careful with saying, what are other people doing for me? Like you said, and start to look at being grateful. I think gratitude plays heavily in the gift of reciprocity. I I think that is a huge element because we're no longer asking, what are they doing for me? It's all about appreciation for what they're doing and giving that back, wanting to share that with them. I think you're absolutely right. 
that gratitude thing, if we slip that into almost all aspects of emotional intelligence, it raises the game. 100%. All right. It's a game changer. Yeah. Okay. So another great little topic to that fits in here is this giving people the benefit of the doubt. I know that I always, um, I'm, I'm just a generally optimistic person about others. And I usually try as hard as I can to assume that the other person has good intention until they show me otherwise. And man, in a lot of company, the minute I say that, I get accused of being Pollyanna and having rose-colored glasses and all that. But I guess I just look at it like I have a choice one way or the other. I can assume good intention or bad intention. That's always on me. And then for the times I get beat, ah, so what? The, the amazing rewards of assuming good intention are so far outweigh the times I've been beat. Talk to me about that and emotional intelligence. Yeah, I love how you said that, but I think it's about a mindset of being vulnerable, feeling safe. I think safety plays a huge role in how we view other people because seeing the best in other people's actions takes that vulnerability, which means that we have to be, you know, completely open to any threats. And right now we are in a state of heightened threat, you know, awareness of all the threats. We can't trust anyone because we are being manipulated so much in society. So it protects us. That's the way we see it. Protection in seeing the worst in people. We don't have to be open. We don't have to be vulnerable. Emotional intelligence allows you to be aware of why you lack the ability to show that vulnerability. And then you can start asking yourself questions. What do I need to do? What mindset shifts need to take place? So I feel safe enough to view people in that positive light, which is a different spin on it, right? Because we think it'd be easy enough to just say, oh, that person cut me off because they're trying to get somewhere. There's an emergency. They're late. And we can say that, but it's much harder to do, right? Easier said than done. Yeah. Back to your your DMV conversation is all about assuming the best in others as well too mm-hmm. or what have you i i think that that there's there's a fine line even in getting feedback like the difference between feedback and criticism where you got to assume good intention oh that can get so dangerous if somebody comes up to you my favorite little expression in my dental office is i walk up to people and i say can i put a bug in your ear about something now you know that just that just, it's a nice, funny little old-fashioned phrase, but it, it takes the stress down. It takes the stakes, lowers the stakes. And okay, what what's next comes out of my mouth? Is it going to feel like feedback or criticism? And that's on me. Talk to me about this, this kind candor notion. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you just triggered something in me. Uh, another story. So when I was working at Wells Fargo, there was this car that kept parking in the road. Well, it was like in the parking lot, right? So it was in the lanes in between cars and it would be there like every single day at the same time after lunch. And so if a car was coming the opposite direction, the other car would have to wait because this car was parked in the way. And so I always told myself, if I ever see the person who is parking their car here every day, not in a parking spot, I'm going to address them kindly, but I'm going to be assertive and address them, right? So Gary Vaynerchuk is the one I feel like that 
coined this term kind candor because he talks about it in his book, right? So it just means being honest, but with kindness. And that was what I was unknowingly doing in this situation. So three, probably three months later, after this car has been parking there, I'm walking out to leave one day and I see this guy walking. I mean, he looked like he could be a linebacker for, you know, the NFL. Huge guy, right? Big, tall. And he's walking to his car and then he keeps like kind of turning around looking behind him. I said, I bet that's him. I bet that's the guy that's parking there. And I told myself, you're going to address him, you know? And so then you feel all those nerves coming up. But I was like, but approach him with love, right? And I said, is that your car? And he goes, yes, it is. I said, I have been dying to meet you. And so I introduced myself and I have a smile on my face. I said, I told myself as soon as I find out who keeps parking here every day, I have to meet them. And I said, I I can't remember the exact dialogue, but I was kind of playing around with him with playful questions like, you know, so that's really cool. Like what cool parking pass do you have to be able to park there? I wish I had one because I hate walking two blocks to try to find parking. And he kind of laughed and he was like, well, I put my police jacket in my front seat because most people don't bother me. And I said, oh, and I said, so, so that makes you special. And he kind of smiled. He was like, yeah, I said, you know, I mean, you seem like a great guy. And I said, I, and I'm sure your mama thinks you are very special. I said, my mom thinks I'm special too. I said, but I would love to know, you know, why you're more special than other people or myself that have to also walk those two blocks. And I said, because every day I see people almost hitting your car, trying to maneuver around it. And we just had a conversation, you know, and some people are like, oh, I would never have said that or I wouldn't have taken that the right way. But it was all about how I approached and the energy that I brought. It wasn't necessarily the words. It was the energy. And it was so funny because I never saw him park there ever again. And we had never ran, ran into each other prior to that. But afterwards, he would see me, flag me down, literally flag me down and said, you made me a better man and you didn't even know it. He would be in a parking space, roll down his window and start waving his arm out and say, hey, look at me, look at me. I found a parking spot. And uh, that just that just tickled me pink and made my day because you can be honest with people and have that kindness attached to it, which changes everything. You know, everybody else is like, well, I would never have talked to him because what then, what are they going to say? We always, again, this goes back to intent and making those assumptions of people. People assume that people are going to react negatively if you approach them with kindness and candor. That is such a delightful little story. Not only from how you accomplish something that needed to be done, maybe for not only just for yourself, but for others, but also that that's back to the ripple effect. You know, I'm sure that he approached something in his life a little bit different from how you laid that down. That's just, that's a little path you started for him to pick up and follow as well. Is this, is this at the core of uh, the difference between feedback and criticism? What's that notion? I think it definitely feeds into it. Like you said, it's all about interpretation, right? What may very well be feedback could be interpreted as criticism if someone lacks self-confidence in that security. The difference, however, between feedback and criticism for me is, is this providing me with valuable information, right? Is this informing me or is this demeaning me in a certain way? For example, if someone says this, let's say you have a copy, right, of something or a design and they say, this is absolutely terrible. Nobody's going to want to buy this. 
that's straight criticism. It offers no valid information. However, if someone says, you know, I don't know if this is going to resonate with your audience because X, Y, Z, I would recommend doing this, then that is feedback. It offers that valuable information. However, someone may hear that feedback and still say, you just don't understand my audience. I understand them better and interpret that as criticism. So it's a very delicate line. So back to the intent. I'm thinking of this way that I that I have learned to approach people successfully in the dental office. When I pull up to somebody and say, oh, can I put a bug in your ear about something? I always start out. Then the, my next words will be something that's like a benefit statement to them. I'll say, I know how organized you like this place to be before you walk out in the evening. And I noticed that, and I'm pretty sure that it may be... A, a source of friction between you and the other dental assistant after I noticed this thing every single night. I bet you there's some place where you can make her like the your biggest fan by, you know, changing this routine with the thus and such. I'm not getting specific enough, but I, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, if it's yeah. all about my intention is to make the relationship between these two people have less friction, which I'm sure they both want. So it's also the difference between feedback and criticism is is there too, is, is down deep what's your intention. Yeah, it's you have to almost target the selfish side of someone. I know that's that may sound bad, but it's kind of true, right? Like if it is how it is going to benefit them, then they're more open to hearing that for sure. Yeah, then it goes from, from criticism to feedback. Well, now the bottom line is too, and that sounds a little manipulative, but I, I can see it the way you're saying. I think it's just a neat tool uh, for us, for, for mm-hmm. the way for me to think about it. Like if I think about what's in it for them, mm-hmm. a better relationship with their coworker, then I'm going to put that bug in their ear and tell them about this thing that I think is causing friction because I know they want a better relationship with their coworker too. Right. You're doing it from a genuine place of caring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So, okay. So we've got so many things to talk about yet. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue with our emotional intelligence list and keep giving people one example after another that they can dip into to make their lives feel much more positive. Dr. Linda here. If you are hoping the world is a lot better than what we see on the news and social media, And if you've been overwhelmed by the misery and negativity coming from the screens in your life, I've got a wonderful connection for you. What I've learned after almost a decade of curating the internet for insight and innovation is that there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. And that's what led me to create this podcast. And then I co-founded The Goodness Exchange. The Goodness Exchange is an amazing place on the internet now where you can enjoy unlimited access to hundreds of articles that give you a more complete, positive perspective about the state of the world. You can listen to exclusive bonus content from this podcast with our guests who are knee-deep in solving some of the world's most vexing problems, and yet they still think the future is bright. We need to know what they know. And at the Goodness Exchange, you can explore a feed of exclusively good news and recommended other kinds of content created by the Goodness Exchange community. No one with good ideas 
and good intentions need feel alone again. You are right to hold out hope for humanity. Millions of people are out there creating a better world, and we have created a gathering place for all that wonder. Who knows what's possible now that there's a place on the internet created to bring out our best impulses and our collective genius. To explore the home for goodness on the internet, visit goodness-exchange.com backslash membership. Thanks. Okay, we're back. So let's continue. We're here with Brittany Nicole Connors-Zavarda. And Brittany Nicole is the founder and publisher of an online news magazine called Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And there you're going to find, oh my gosh, so many articles that can give you pause to think about ways to handle things, ways to handle yourself, approaches that you can share with your children or people you care about when they're asking you maybe to help them solve a problem. So I'd recommend you you, you check out the Emotional Intelligence magazine. And uh, then Brittany Nicole has an amazing book as well, where she dives into her story. And through that that story, you're going to see your own ability to just burst into a new way of reacting and acting in the world. Her book's called um, The EQ Deficiency. So, Brittany, Nicole, how about we continue with our discussion of points that I thought would be fun to kind of explore? How about this this mentality of the cancel culture? What does cancel culture have to do with emotional intelligence? And when we engage in it, when we we seem to savor our power there in the cancel culture world. Yeah. To me, cancel culture is a lack of tolerance and understanding. That is how I interpret it because it is saying, if you don't agree with me, if you don't see the way that I see things, then you are not valid. Your points are not valid and nobody should have to listen to that. I see this a lot with people who try to see things from both sides, which is really unfortunate. And I think it happens And I'm not talking about the people doing the canceling. I mean, the people that are targeted by the cancel culture, right? So I think a lot of people, for example, uh, Julie Irwin Zimmerman, I interviewed her for my book and this happened back in, I want to say it was like 2000 and when was the elections got 16, the first elections with Trump, but there was, there was something going on at the Capitol and she reported on it. She wrote this article for the Atlantic. And then later she was provided the full clip. So she saw this like two minute clip and she made an observation and wrote an article based on that. And then came back and retracted her original opinion once she saw the full two hour or however long video, which I think is honorable. How many people get new information and are quick to say I was wrong, right? The problem happened or what happened was that people from both sides were attacking her at that point. And calling her a fence sitter. And that is, I I declare myself a fence sitter, not because I can't decide, but because things are not simply black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. There's, life is complex. And I think cancel culture tries to simplify things and it targets anyone who either disagrees with them or tries to bring clarity and awareness to both sides at the same time. This is this is at the heart of it, isn't it? it I, I like to say that, you know, when somebody tries to oversimplify a problem and, and 
put something out there as if it's so obvious that the other side should think like me. I just look at that sideways and say, well, either you're terribly under-informed because you don't realize the complexity in this, or you're just trying to reduce something to a common a common thread so you can promote your agenda. I mean, complex problems are complex for their very nature. They'd be solved if they weren't. Right. And the ego gets wrapped up into that 100%. Yeah. And, and that shows, you know, a lack of emotional intelligence in the areas of a lack of both social awareness and, and self-awareness. We tend to attach things to our identity. And I think that's conditioned in us at a very young age whether it's our occupation, our beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. But our beliefs and our behaviors are much more difficult to strip away from our identity because we don't know who we are without them, right? We don't have that deeper level of sense of self because we were never taught how to be still enough to listen to our inner voice, right? That's, that's kind of at the heart of it, it, of this not being able to say we were wrong. Mm-hmm isn't it? Yep. It's, it starts really deep. Yeah. If, you're, if your identity is to attached to some stand that you've taken, yep. that probably comes from something way deep in your childhood or what have you, then you literally can't let that go because you're and then that attaches go. to control, okay. right? We want to have control of things, but I think anyone, and I'm speaking from my past experiences, whenever I felt like I had to have control over things that included other people's beliefs how other people did things, right? Which ties into all of this. But when we're really confident within ourselves and we realize that everybody has different perspectives in life and that's what makes life beautiful and we have that self-confidence within who we truly are, it is so liberating to give up that control because then we get curious. And with curiosity comes wisdom and true understanding, there's this quote, and I, I don't remember who said it, and I can only paraphrase it, but it had to do something with you can't learn new information by just listening to yourself talk, right? But everybody's talking to themselves or talking to other people and just hearing themselves. How many people are open to hearing other, other people's opinions? Yeah, or just staying in their circles so tight. Yes. Talking yes. to a wonderful person that I've known since he was a college kid. And he's, he's just tried and tried and tried to um, read so much philosophy and apply it to his life's ancient wisdom. He is very, very well-versed in ancient wisdom. And as he was talking, I realized that he was spiraling down so deep um, since the last time I talked to him in the ancient wisdom that he was studying, that he must have a tough time relating to ordinary people every day. And, and surely he expressed that as well. But then when I said, you know, maybe, maybe just start really branching out on the stuff that you're reading. Do you know who Malcolm Gladwell is? Well, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is one of the most popular and wonderful, knowledgeable writers of our times. No, never heard of Malcolm Gladwell. I asked a bunch of other authors that are popular for our times. No, we never heard of any of those. And I thought, oh, okay. So, all right, let me give you my favorite Malcolm Gladwell book um, to start with. You know, I, I love Blink. Blink is is the is mm-hmm. the book about how our minds work in that instant second before we're aware yep. and how that affects the things we do. And um, I named a few books and then he got very quiet. He said, Linda, you know, I'm starting to feel a sense of anxiety. I don't really want to read books that other people recommend to me to be that would expand my perspective because then I feel like I'll have to give up 
a whole bunch of stuff that I already know from my depth in philosophy. I feel like I'll have to give up a lot of knowledge. And I thought, oh, this is why we're not listening to others. Because we're afraid of what we might have to give up. The, the, the notions we're married to. The thoughts of what's real out in the world. And I, I, I can't tell you how lovely that conversation was and how, uh, how empowering it was for me to know that that is why we're so fearful of learning and knowledge and getting outside our circles. Because we know that we're going to have to give up on stuff that we thought was absolutely true. Talk to me about that and emotional intelligence. You know what that makes me think of? I'm a huge foodie. I love, love, love food. Okay. And I would get so frustrated when I would go to restaurants with people and they would order the exact same thing on the menu over and over and over again. I'm like, why don't you try something new? But but this is so good. I love this. And I don't want to make a mistake and get something else. I'm like, but there's always next time, right? And I think that ties into what you were talking about with information and beliefs. I like to see it as a buffet. I mean, I love to try new foods and it's kind of all laid out there for me. And then I can decide what do I want to eat today? What information do I want to digest? And it gives me an option to say, well, now that I've tasted a bunch of things or now that I'm privy to a bunch of information, now I have more of a choice with what is better suited to my palate. How do you know if there's nothing better out there if you don't try it? How do you know if there's not a different belief or a way of viewing the world if you're not open to exploring it? I think a huge part of emotional intelligence is that curiosity piece. Yeah. I I mean, I, I can turn this light totally on myself and think about things that I absolutely know to be true. And then, (laughs) oh boy, about every third day I'm saying, I don't even know what I was thinking. You know, if we we get comfortable, I mean, this, this young man that I'm talking to is a brilliant man. He is... He has a mind for philosophy that is just, I just admire so much. And I think that the next level for all of us is to question our limiting beliefs because really almost every belief is limiting if it keeps you from being curious about some other way to think, right? 110%, 110%. Yeah. I grew up in a small town, so you had a very narrow focus of what reality was. Most people had the exact same beliefs. And if you ventured too far outside of that, then you were evil. You were conspiring with the devil at that point. And I was raised, so I'm kind of going a little off script here, but it kind of goes back to like all the things that are out there and limiting ourselves, right? But I was raised in a Christian home. And I remember my grandparents talking about how the yin yang was a symbol of evil. And, you know, when 9 11 happened, all Muslims were terrorists. And then I started working for a family at a restaurant. It was an Italian restaurant at the time. And I found out later that they were Muslim. And I became very close with them and their family. And I went to some of, they invited me to some of their family events and they were so generous and gracious and loving and kind. And I'm like, but you're Muslim? What? You know? And so that changed my whole perception of the mindset that I was raised with. And so that kind of 
opened me up. That experience made me question other things that I had been told by my family and my community that were bad or wrong. And I wanted to explore them. So I think people can go in two different directions. They can be that person that's more reserved, that's comfortable with what they believe, or they can have that experience and say, tell me more, prove me wrong a little bit more. Right. Yeah. That's, that is the the lovely part of having a set of beliefs that get you through the day and night is that, that the best parts of those beliefs are always there to serve you. And, and when new information comes in, it doesn't have to wipe those things off the map. It can just improve how those beliefs serve us. So that's the way I, I look at a lot of a lot of different ways people frame up their lives, whether it's with religion or their politics or what have you, is that if we if we consider it an open book, we can keep improving the sentences there. We can keep improving the language that we have for what's possible in our lives and with this particular foundation as a starting point. And I, I love that about emotional intelligence. As its core, is emotional intelligence the ability to be flexible with what comes your way and manage the meaning of things. Yeah. I mean, it's heavily weighted in emotional resilience and it's not, I don't like the word coping with emotions, right? Because to me that says we're still trying to control things, but I think a huge part of emotional intelligence is that ability to surrender to the process and go with the flow and not be so fixated on the outcome. That is the bottom line, isn't it? It's that being married to an outcome over and over again. Like when I go to put a bug in somebody's ear, if I'm if I'm married to the outcome that they'll see it exactly my way or that they'll be grateful for the feedback. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. that's being married to an outcome too. I mean, on all sides, that's that's what keeps tripping us up, I think. Even during the pandemic, for God's sakes, yeah. every day. We can be sort of married to an outcome and then go home knuckles dragging because it Mm -hmm. was such a day after day bit of pandemonium. Speaking about the outcome thing and emotional intelligence, I'm going to use again another personal story, if that's okay. So I was raised to have control over everything. And that was something that was kind of mirrored by my parents, right? Or displayed by my parents. I can't think of the exact word I'm looking for right now, but you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And so whenever happened and it was off my schedule or not planned, I would have a panic attack. I would become extremely hostile and angry and yell and scream and shout. And I would allow that experience to ruin my entire day because of that marriage to the outcome. But what emotional intelligence allows me to do, and I'm not as attached to outcomes like I used to be, But if I were to apply emotional intelligence in that situation, I would say, why is that upsetting me? It's not that they were five minutes late. If I really drill down to the why, I'm taking that situation extremely personal. I see that situation as an attack on me, disrespecting me. And then that leads into more questions of, well, why do you feel disrespected? And it ultimately was an insecurity on my part. I needed that validation that I was worthy, that I was worthy of respect, 
from other people because I lacked that from inside myself. So I think that's what the beauty of emotional intelligence is, is not just understanding our intentions, why we're tied to an outcome, being emotionally resilient, all of these things. It's being able to ask ourselves why and really drilling down to the root of it all, which few of us are doing or even have the ability to be aware of the questions we need to ask for that. It really is about asking better questions, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why coaching is so amazing, right? Coaches just ask you questions to help you drill down to the root of that. Isn't that true? That that gives me this whole coaching movement. Uh, That gives me a new way of thinking about this whole coaching movement. What if it's really just lovely to have a thought partner in Mm -hmm. this world who isn't going to have the same dialogue in their mind as we have in our own? Yeah. And, And then, you know, it's... Even good friends can have sort of a repeated dialogue narrative that they offer us over and over again. But somebody who's completely unfamiliar with our lives is going to have questions that are better. And I I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about emotional intelligence, because I see this in uh, so much overwhelm in society is related to this constantly trying to make sense of things that we can't control and that we, at least of late, never had a, had an idea would come our way. I never thought, I'm a dentist, my husband's a dentist, I never thought in all my life that I would be among the unemployed. But in Vermont, week two of the pandemic, the governor canceled dentistry. For two months, we were unable to see patients. Now, this was a great example of trying to find an emotionally intelligent way through a forest I never expected to face. Talk to me a little bit about how this same sort of married to an outcome relates to mistakes we made. What's the emotionally intelligent way to handle mistakes that we make and and mistakes from others? I think we're so fixated on the negatives of mistakes. I mean, just the word mistake, right? It seems negative. I think we don't look at the lessons learned or have that positive outlook like, oh, well, that didn't work. What does that tell me, right? Like a science experiment. I love science in school. And so you test things, you have hypotheses and you experiment. And if it doesn't work, well, you just mark that one off and then you move on to the next one. We don't do that in life with mistakes. We tend to dwell on it and fixate on it because, and I tie this right back to our attachment to our identity. We see that mistake as a mark on keeping score with ourselves and our value in life. And with emotional intelligence, you you again, don't have that attachment. You become curious. I think a huge part of emotional intelligence, again, is that curiosity component, which is where the questions come in. Yeah. So what we do when we make a mistake, when we overstep with a friend and may know instantly that we've offended, when we feel offended ourselves by someone, the best thing to do may be something I like to talk about, which is pause. Mm -hmm. Just Don't follow your impulses over a cliff in that moment. Just pause and maybe think of a better question to ask yourself next. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I just think of now what, like, but not like now what, right. But more of like now what, and it goes back to that pause that you're talking about, but it's a different tone. It's not a condemning tone or a judgmental tone. It's a curious tone. Now what? And so you see that as there's a problem that needs to be solved. This isn't the end all be all. 
the mistake doesn't stop and end here. This isn't the end of it, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's it. it. And it could be the beginning of something fabulous. Oh, 100%. 110%. Always, oh, gosh, if I had a quarter for all the happy accidents that mm-hmm. we decided with our children when they were little that that there was going to be accidents and and what we would we would always try and figure out a way to call it a happy accident. And I don't know what happened with that. That was just something a couple of young parents thought my husband and I originally when we have kids and it turned out to be like a family. Now it's like a family tradition to have something go way wrong and then figure out how to turn it into a happy accident. Yeah. I I think of uh, Sarah, I can't think of her last name. Is it Blakely? Blakeney? She's the founder of Spanx. Yes, that's who it is. Uh Yeah. And she would talk about how every day, and I think this was her, oh my gosh, but she would talk about how every day she would come home and her dad would say, so what mistake did you make today? Because he wanted her, he wanted to encourage her to take safe risk. And, And I say safe risk, like well calculated, well thought out risk, but not to be afraid of stepping outside of her comfort zone to make those mistakes. And I thought that that's amazing because I think like you were talking about with the parent thing, my parents were helicopter parents, right? I never had a broken bone in my life. I never went on any trips or did anything that would risk my safety or injury. And that kind of followed me as I went into school, as I chose an occupation, I didn't want to do anything that may end up being harmful, whether physical, mental, emotional, any of that financially harmful, but that prevented me from doing a lot of things. And so when I started to take those well-calculated risks and be vulnerable to those mistakes that come along with that, that catapulted me in the direction that I, I felt like I needed to be in life. And you probably, I don't know if you do this, but it's, you probably say to yourself, gee, I made that mistake. Don't have to make that one again. Probably saved me from something even mm-hmm. more critical. That's yeah. the way I, that's the way I calm my, my nerves about the mistakes I make in the world. I say, well, check that one off. I, I, I never have to make the same mistake twice. And that, that terrible mistake I just made might keep me from making some even bigger mistake. Well, it will keep me from making some bigger mistake on down the line. So I even, you know, reframe the the negativity into a future positive. Well, and you were mentioning earlier, Linda, um, you know, just communicating with other people and saying things that you regret saying or shouldn't have said or, or feel terrible about, but it is that feeling of remorse that again, makes you more aware when you go into another conversation, you, yeah. you have to learn from those things. And I feel like the stronger you have that remorse, the more uh, it sticks with you when you go into another conversation. And, and the better person you'll be with mm-hmm. for others. The, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, this is a lovely conversation. We could probably just keep taking things off for the next few hours. We'll have to have you back someday, Brittany Nicole, and you can fill us full of all kinds of nice workarounds for the for the flaws that we have as human beings. Isn't that part of emotional intelligence right from the get-go, just realizing that we're flawed beings? Yes. And accepting that, having that acceptance for it, for sure. Yeah. But this well, has been great. great, Dr. Linda. I have thoroughly, I, I love our conversations. This is our third one. And I just love it. I could talk to you for hours for sure. (laughs) Well, this is so great. So as we wrap up here, Brittany Nicole shared three articles with me that I'm going to put in the show notes that she really feels are 
going to be very, very helpful to lots of people. She has five techniques to override our primal impulse to defend and protect our ego. Yep, I'm going to look there. (laughs) Family Farm always puts me in that position of protecting my ego. She also has one about feedback versus criticism that goes into that topic much deeper. And then she's got one, four steps to increase self-awareness and 12 strategies to help you self-regulate. And man, self-regulation is something that we could dive into for a whole a whole nother show. So with these articles, what's next for people? Where can they connect with you? Definitely on the magazine. There's a ton of resources. We also have aggregated video content from YouTube and other amazing articles from other authors and writers outside of EI magazine. I have a podcast as well, Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence, where I interview people and we kind of have these same discussions. And of course, you know, my book, um, The EQ Deficiency. So that's on Amazon. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I'll say goodbye and I'll hope that um, all these connections to goodness and progress will carry you through your week and you'll start finding the joy and wonder that Brittany, Nicole, and I have talked about when we get a little bit more emotionally intelligent. Okay. Have a great day.